Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. How many of you, when you come to Southridge, uh, come from the Pittstown direction, coming this way? In other words, when you leave Southridge, you come to the end of our driveway, make a left. How many of you come from that direction? Raise your hands. Pittstown people. Yeah, all right. I live in, the, uh, near Qu- in Quakertown, which is sort of a, I call Pittstown and Quakertown the Twin Cities. And so Quakertown is my hood. Uh, so I come this way. How many of you, uh, when you leave our driveway, make a right and go towards 78? Yeah, a lot of 78 people. You guys are the um, pagan group, but that's how it is. Um, so if you come from Pittstown, um, you're going to probably immediately recognize what I'm going to say. Uh, All the way back in February of this year, uh, a big, not small, like a big construction sign was actually put on our property up here, which is not a problem, it's fine. Uh, And it's it's not just like a small thing, it's one of those that are solar powered, so it like flashes messages that they have on like Route 78 or other places. And, And here's what it said when it was put there in February. It said... I can't remember all the words, but it says something about like road construction happening, choose alternate routes, like expect delays. That was put there in February. It said that construction was to begin March 23rd, and it's been like 10 months since that sign's been there, and nothing's happened. <laughs> like it's, it's kind of driving me nuts. It's like nothing's happened. Actually, I just noticed in the last week or two, now the date has been removed. It's still there. And now it says, caution, like road construction ahead. Uh, That very reason is precisely why I often pay very little attention to construction signs. Uh, Because half the time they seem to announce something and say something that just isn't true. It's not happening. Uh, since February, construction was to begin on March 20th. That's a long time ago. March 23rd is a long time ago. That's not the coming March. That's last March. And nothing's happened. This morning, we're going to look into the Gospel of John. And when John, the Gospel writer, writes his account, he actually, one of the people that he begins with is another guy named John, not himself, but John the Baptist, or John the guy who baptized people. And he recounts kind of the beginning of this guy's life and some of the pronouncements that he made about the coming of Jesus. And he actually uses language to sort of highlight this because he doesn't want us to miss it. Uh, Quite honestly, that sign's been up there a long time. I ignore it. I'm immune to it. I paid attention to it this morning because I knew I was going to be talking about it. And I actually noticed, wow, the date's no longer there. But generally, I fully ignore it. It's just part of the landscape. I pay no attention to it. That's exactly what John the Baptist, who John tells us about, the gospel writer John tells us about, that's exactly what he does not want to happen to us. And so we're going to look into John chapter 1, verses 29 through 36. Um, We're in a series, just launching it this morning, called God in Flesh. 
as we talk about what it means for God to become flesh and be present with us during this Christmas season. I'm going to ask Moses to come, and he's going to read his verses. Um, you can't really have a better guide reading scripture than a guy named Moses, uh, which is pretty cool. I can't wait to do a message series in Exodus and have Moses read. It's going to be awesome. Uh, and he's kind of got the voice of Moses as well. Uh, like if, if there were voices for sale somewhere on a shelf, like I choose that one. Um, so Moses, if you could read John chapter 1, verse 29 through 36. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. We are going to look at three things, and maybe you can remember these. We're going to look at a weird word, a strange or an odd animal, and lastly, a strange bird. Uh, a weird word, an odd animal, and a strange bird. So that's what we're going to go through this morning, and uh, that's how we're going to launch a series. First, a weird word. Uh, this is what it says in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That word look is actually a strange word, but John also uses it again in verses 35 and 36. These are verses that aren't on the screens, but let me just read them to you. Here's what he says in verses 35 and 36, just a few verses after John 1:29. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now, if you have an older translation, possibly the King James, it probably might use the word behold there. Behold the Lamb of God. And it's a very difficult word to translate. It was, this was originally written in ancient Greek. And so the old English uses the word behold. The updated English translations use the word look. Probably neither of them fully capture what John is saying because it is actually a weird word that's difficult to translate. But behold actually probably does it more justice than the word look. Because what John is saying is, is not necessarily visual. It's not saying look, hey, see visually. It's much deeper than that. Uh, the word behold in its old kind of English context is actually made up of, of two words. I guess the, first, the prefix be or by is sort of like fully, but the second part is, is hold. And so when John says behold in the old English translations, it's literally hold this in your being. Not just look, but take a moment and hold this truth 
close to yourself. The word is actually used typically by authors in ancient times when they would begin a sentence, it was sort of with the anticipation that, hey, reader, you better lock into this because what's coming is not what you're expecting. Like, lean in because what I'm about to say is not what you would expect me to say. Lean in, hold. Maybe a more modern version is like, get a hold of that. Sometimes we say that. Sometimes we say, let that sink in. Maybe you've said that as a parent or maybe you said that as an employer or something like, like, let that sink in. That's the idea of behold. It's not something like, hey, look, it's let that sink in. Get a hold of this and not just let it go through your mind quickly, but get a hold of it. Now, quite honestly, this is the last thing that we as modern people naturally do. We as modern people do anything but behold. We swipe right, we scroll down. We live in information age where the only way that we can survive is not to behold things. We survive by skimming. We survive by hydroplaning over information. We have to do that for survival. But John the baptizer is saying, hey, don't, don't scroll on Don't scroll down on this. Don't swipe right. Don't move on to the next thing. Hold this in your being for a while. Let it sink in. Which kind of reminds me of this. And it's just incredibly important. Knowing. Knowing something is not equal to receiving something. When you receive something into your being... You, 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 it gets to the core of you. It shapes you. It's so easy. And by the way, this is probably, of anybody in the room, this is probably one of my greatest challenges more than all of you because I'm sort of a professional Bible teacher. And so I know a lot of stuff. And so the greatest danger that I have is to think that knowing something means that I've truly received that thing. That's a greatest danger for you as well. Probably a little bit less so than me because I'm, I, I kind of like swim in it more. But one of your greatest dangers is, th- is thinking, oh, I know that, therefore I've received it. I know that, therefore I fully have embraced it, understand it, I've held it. John is saying, time out. Don't skim by this. Let this be held in your being. Give yourself to it. Take it inside of yourself. Ruminate over it. Don't move by it quickly. We might say awareness of something does not equal absorbing something. You can be aware of something that's true, but you really haven't absorbed the full implications of what is true. I might also say believing something to be true. You can believe something is true, but that doesn't equal trusting in its truth. I'm not a guy who enjoys heights, and I can fully believe that a ladder is solid. I'm very slow to trust myself to that ladder. You can believe that something is true. That's an entirely different thing than actually trusting in its truth and giving yourself to that truth. You can believe that God is good. That's entirely different 
than actually having that shape into the core of your being as in terms of shaping your demeanor of how you're seeing life. So John the Baptist is saying, like, hold on, time out. You're going to need to let this seep into your being, and it's actually going to be challenged. It's going to be counterintuitive. As Liv mentioned, this is actually the first Sunday of Advent, the first day of Advent. And Advent takes us into the Christmas season. I didn't grow up in a tradition where we really focused on Advent that much. Uh, We focused on Christmas, and kind of especially in our modern culture, we start playing Christmas songs in October. And, you know, it's kind of like just the exuberance, the excitement kind of builds up for Christmas. Uh, But the original purpose of Advent wasn't sort of to begin the energy and the enthusiasm of Christmas a number of weeks earlier. It was actually to cultivate a longing in your soul to kind of cultivate a, a sense of preparation so that later on you could fully absorb the truth of what Christmas is all about. Uh, I didn't find this anywhere, so maybe I'm making it up, uh, but uh, it helps me. Maybe it doesn't help you, you can forget about it. But, uh, you know, I kind of wonder, like, why do they serve appetizers or d'oeuvres before a meal? Well, I don't know. Like, maybe, there's, maybe somebody actually knows, but sort of like the best I can figure out is if you have an appetizer, it sort of takes a little bit of the edge off of your hunger so that when you actually have the main course, you don't just like gulp it down. You actually have your hunger just a little bit tamed. You kind of like wake up your taste buds. You kind of like, you kind of get the edge off of your hunger. So you don't simply consume what's coming next, but you actually enjoy and fully eat what's coming. Does that make sense? Like your taste buds actually awake to what's next because you're not just trying to like satisfy your hunger. You've sort of woke up your taste buds and now you're going to like fully enjoy what's coming. And that's kind of how Advent functions. It actually cultivates a sense of longing, a sense of, of need, a sense not necessarily of excited anticipation, but the anticipation of a deep longing. Now, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and again, he says in verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God. So John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and John the Baptist is kind of a complicated guy. And some of you may be very familiar with the Bible, some of you may not be, so like, I'll, I'll try to navigate through this in a way that's somewhat comprehensible, and uh, hopefully you can follow along with this. So we're going to talk about this guy named John the Baptist who is, who is saying this. Uh, at the very last verses of the book of Malachi, Malachi is the book that ends the Old Testament. So the full first half of your Bible is the Old Testament. That ends with the book of Malachi, and then comes the New Testament, and it begins with the book of Matthew. Tracking with me? So the very last verses of Malachi, which is the very last book of the Old Testament, these are the final words of Malachi. Here's what they are, and actually I'll just read uh, verse 5. It won't be on the screen yet. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you, listen to this, Elijah the prophet... Before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Then here's what he says in verse 6. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a degree of destruction. Now, we could spend a lot of time and add some really cool stuff going on there. But I just want to pick out the, 
what's actually in verse 5, that Malachi ends his thoughts in the book of Malachi with, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Now, here's the deal. When you flip from Malachi to Matthew, you flip one page in your Bible. You flip it like this. In real life, that represents 400 years. And so between Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, which is the very last verse of the Old Testament, between, and that Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the New Testament, that represents 400 years where seemingly nothing happens. There's silence. Uh, we don't know that God speaks through prophets. There's no miracles. There's literally nothing that happens that in recorded in Scripture that happens during that time. But Malachi ends with this idea that, hey, there's going to be another Elijah coming. Now, when Malachi says that, he's not meaning like Elijah is actually the physical body that's going to be resurrected. What he's saying is there's going to be another kind of Elijah-like person coming. Now, Elijah was a guy in the Old Testament. We did a series on him a number of years ago. Uh, he was a prophet during the time of the king of Israel was Ahab. And there was a lot of bad stuff going on in Israel. They were worshiping other gods, uh, sacrificing human beings, literally. And so Elijah came to warn the people of Israel hundreds of years uh, before Malachi even wrote. So centuries before the Gospel of Matthew was written, he, Elijah came to sort of wake people up to their disobedience and violation of God's righteousness and his truth. Well, this guy named Zacharias was the father of John the Baptist. And when he was given, when he was visited by an angel, and it was told him, hey, you're going to give birth to some guy, and you're going to na name him, he's going to be John the Baptist. Well, he had a hard time believing all that. But when that announcement was made, here's what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. It says, and he will go forth before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, it's John the Baptist guy who is going to be born. He's going to come in the same spirit and power of this ancient prophet named Elijah. Now, later on in Matthew chapter 17, uh, the disciples are asking kind of why the religious leaders are not fully embracing Jesus as the Messiah and the person who he's claiming to be. He says, uh, the disciples say, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Because they're not embracing Jesus because the teachers of the law, the Pharisees are saying, no, Jesus can't be the Messiah because first Elijah needs to come. Is, follow me here? So that's what their critique is. Like, Jesus can't be the Messiah because we're told from the prophets that Elijah must come first. Well, Jesus' response to them is basically this. Well, Elijah has actually come but they didn't listen to him. He goes through this little bit of a dialogue. He actually, actually, I'll read the verse. He says, Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. He's referring to John the Baptist, but have done to him everything they wished in the same way the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. And then here's what it says in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 17. Then the disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying, no, no, like Elijah, so the personification of Elijah has come. He's coming John the Baptist. So there's the connection. Follow me a little bit longer in this, and then we'll kind of get to where we're, we're headed. So, so here's the deal. 
Elijah in the Old Testament, he wore some pretty odd clothing. Uh, he wore things that just really didn't make sense to people. Second Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we're given a description of what Elijah wore. Somebody's trying to figure out, hey, who is this guy? And, and here's what sec, first, Second Kings chapter 1, verse 8, they replied, he, referring to Elijah, had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. Then King Ahab, the king then, said, ah, that was Elijah the Tishbite. So they described this crusty old prophet. He has a garment of hair. He has a leather belt around his waist. And King Ahab says, ah, that's the Elijah dude. Well, Matthew chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, says this about a description of John the Baptist. He's a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Notice it's a wilderness. It's the wild places. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Listen to this. John's clothes were made of camel hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Now, so why is this happening? Why does Elijah in the Old Testament come, and he's got a coat of hair, he wears a leather belt, and he's sort of this, regarded to be this crazy man. John the Baptist comes in fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, and Jesus himself recognized John the Baptist, he's not Elijah resurrected, but he's in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he comes with a coat of hair as well as a leather belt. What are the prophets trying to do? Well, they weren't just speaking verbally. They were also speaking visually as well. And here's what they were saying. They did not come in sort of sophisticated dress. They didn't come sort of looking to play the part of somebody that you would naturally pay attention to. And here's what they were trying to say. They were saying, the message that I proclaim is not going to be mainstream. They were not wearing mainstream clothing. They were not dressed as mainstream teachers. They were not dressed as mainstream influencers. If you want to influence people these days, if you meet with somebody important, you sort of look the part. You go mainstream because that's the way that you're, they're going to naturally connect if you present yourself and dress in a way that they expect. So Elijah and John the Baptist dress entirely different because they want to communicate their message is not going to be what you're looking for. Their message is not going to be something that you naturally behold. It's going to be actually counterintuitive to what you think that you're after. And so they dress and sort of these kind of clothing, it demonstrates, hey, the message that I'm going to deliver is something you're going to need to behold because it's not going to be your expectation. It's going to violate what you would think would be the solution. And just sort of the rawness of the way they dressed, especially emphasized, the message that I'm proclaiming is not about you looking good, fulfilling your dreams, and about your own self-indulgence. This message initially is not going to sound empowering. That's what they're communicating, both Elijah and John the Baptist, by wearing the kind of clothing they wore. Uh, what I'm going to proclaim 
is not this outwardly empowering message. It's not going to be easily embraced. It's not going to be like, wow, that's cool. That's exactly what I would have expected. That's what I'm naturally going to listen to. Their dress was saying, this is exactly what you're not going to be looking for. Which simply means this. What comes next and the whole message of Christmas with God becoming flesh is something we actually have to intentionally behold. Because here's the deal. You're not prone to receive it. I'm not prone to welcome it. I think I I naturally look for something other than what God delivers. You know, it's pretty common in our day for people to say like, oh, like, like that's not how I would see God or that's not God compared to my, like that's really dangerous because what John is saying is your expectations are naturally off. If you think you're going to intuitively arrive at who Jesus is and what he's here to do, 99.9999% that you're going to be wrong because he's going to violate your expectations. Like you will miss Jesus if you do not lean in. You're naturally going to be responsive to a different kind of message because it seems mundane. It seems powerless. It seems dormant. It doesn't seem powerful. That's what John the Baptist, so John says, behold, look, hold this in your being because otherwise it will naturally escape your attention. Normally, you're going to blow by it like I blow by the road sign. Like it's just there. And it's not powerful to do anything. That's the weird word. Secondly, the odd animal. The odd animal, uh, verse 29 again. The next day, John saw Jesus coming and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when John says lamb of God, when he said that, people in his day would have automatically referenced the time of the Passover. Uh, that was all the way back in the ancient times, about 1,300 years before Jesus was born, maybe 1,400 years. And the Passover was when God sent an angel and actually destroyed the firstborn son in all of the homes of Egypt. And the only way that the son could be spared was if the family would kill a lamb, an innocent lamb, a small lamb, and put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts. Now, that's crazy, it's weird, it's odd, but that was how it worked. And I'll just say this, the reason that God killed the firstborn was not because he's mad, was not because he's just throwing elbows around, it's precisely because in ancient times, the firstborn represented the power and influence of the family. And so God was actually saying that your power and influence is not what you should be trusting in. Your power and influence in the firstborn of the family, that's a foldy place to put your trust. And so God was just making a statement really strong. Hey, if, if, if your trust is in what gives you empowerment and influence to continue your line, uh, your trust is misplaced. And so the only way they could be spared of that was to put the blood of a lamb across the top, the lintel, and the doorposts. Well, John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you're, you're in the listening audience, if you're, if you're back in ancient times, you're thinking this. 
Like our greatest problem is not sort of like the sin thing. Their greatest problem was the dominance of Rome. Uh, they have a thousand things that are the problem. Getting rid of their sin really isn't one of them. But here's the deal. John is saying, behold, don't miss this. Look hard. Because this is actually your biggest problem. Um, I grew up uh, back in Pennsylvania. We had a little farm. It wasn't a commercial farm. But we had sheep and chickens and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so some of our sheep are kind of nasty. A lot of our stuff was nasty. But I don't know. I guess maybe it's been bred out these days. I don't know. But we had, a, we had, we had this ram, a buck. And I remember him clearly. We had a bunch of them, and I remember ones more later when I was older. But we had this nasty ram. He had like a black face. And I literally remember, he was, he was mean and nasty. And I remember like as a kid, like I would like pick grass outside of the fence and put my hand through the fence and try to feed this thing grass because I wanted him to like me. Like I was so like afraid of him, like try to pacify the thing. And uh, I, this, we had a barn. And the stall was probably maybe like 20 feet long. And this ram was just so domineering. He would literally put his hind rear against the back wall of the barn, run full force, leave the ground, and pound that door. And he, he splintered many doors. Uh, we actually put angle iron and bolted angle iron to each of the lintels on the side of the door, put a four by six oak beam across that, because that's the only way you could keep him in. Otherwise, he'd pop any other. If you put a latch, he'd just pop it through. I can still remember eating dinner in the house and hearing that thing hit the door. I mean, it was loud, man. He would pound that thing. He would pound it. Now, in my mind, it would make more sense for John to say, Behold, the ram of God. Right? I mean, that's what I'm talking about. That's what we need to solve the cures of this world. We need the ram of God. We need a God who's going to like take control. We need a God who's going to use his power to wipe things clean. We need a God who's going to be a ram and clean stuff up. But John does not say, behold, the ram of God. He says, behold, the lamb of God. Why? Because... If Jesus came first as a ram, you and I would be part of the path of destruction. But he doesn't come as a ram. He comes as a lamb. We had many lambs, and I still remember them being born, and they'd be soaking wet, and you'd dry them with a towel, and sometimes we'd, bring, we'd literally bring them into the house and feed them with bottles and all that kind of stuff if the mom rejected them or if she died during the birth, all that kind of stuff. And lambs were like cuddly. They were innocent. They were lambs were powerless. And so John the Baptist saying, behold, like the powerless lamb of God, behold, this is how the sin, the evil, the violation of the world is going to be dealt with. And friends, that is something that is totally counterintuitive. It lines up with John the Baptist being dressed with camel's hair and a leather belt. Elijah being dressed in a hairy coat and a leather belt. This is, like, this is not what you expect. 
You're going to have to step up. You're going to have to lean in. Because we naturally think we need the ram of God to clean stuff up. And instead, God sends Jesus. And he's not coming as the ram of God. He's coming as the lamb of God. And he's coming to not just crush sin, because if he did, you would be crushed. But he actually comes to be crucified on a cross. Because before he crushes sin, sin first crushes him so that you can receive life. Behold, the Lamb of God. Listen to Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. He was oppressed and afflicted. He's oppressed and afflicted. That's the last thing we need to clean up this world. Like we need, we need oppression and affliction cleaned up. We need somebody who's going to take over oppression and affliction. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Listen to this. Listen to these last three phrases. Crazy. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Hold, hold on. Like we need somebody who's going to come to wipe out oppression and judgment. Hold on. He's actually coming. He's oppressed. He's judged. That's counterintuitive. You got to behold that. I would think God would send the ram of God to wipe out oppression and judgment. Instead, he sends the lamb of God who takes on himself your oppression, your judgment, your darkness of sin. Behold the Lamb of God. Lastly, and real quickly, we got a weird word, we got an odd animal, then we got a mysterious bird, a strange bird. Verse 32, then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove, and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify, this is God's chosen one. There's a lot we could talk about with the dove. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, in the creation account, we read that the earth was formless and empty. Darkness hovered over the face, of the, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The image is there is like a bird. Dove isn't specifically mentioned, but many Old Testament Jewish scholars believe that's sort of the sense of the dove hovering over the waters. In Genesis chapter 8, God cleans up the evil of the world by sending a, a flood where life is largely destroyed. Noah sends a dove out of the ark to figure out if, if new life is starting to blossom from the earth. Here's what it says in Genesis 8:11. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. The dove comes, and there's a freshly plucked olive leaf. There's new life. So Jesus is the lamb. At his baptism, there's a dove that comes down symbolizing that through Jesus, new life is on the move. That Jesus is not just throwing around his elbows and get, getting rid of oppression and, and, and sin and violation. Instead, he's giving his life a sacrifice 
through which sin can be forgiven and the spirit of God comes and he breathes new life. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And as we celebrate communion, December communion is always, I don't know, it's just kind of surreal to me. Now Christmas is coming and we'll gather here for Christmas services, it'll be beautiful candle lighting in a room. A sense of nostalgia kind of fills this place. We sing Christmas carols. We open gifts. We have beautiful decorated trees. And just the, the birth of Jesus is just so beautiful. And yet here we are on December 3rd, 22 days before that. And we're going to eat a wafer and drink a cup of juice. Listen, that represents the most horrific form of torturous death this world has ever invented. And the baby whose birth we celebrate at the end of the month undergoes this horrific, torturous death. Listen, friends. Behold that. Let that seep into your being. And you will miss it. You'll scroll down past it. You'll swipe right. But let that sink into your being. That you have a God who bleeds. Sin is horrific. Sin is grotesque. Sin is violent. Sin is brutal. Sin is malignant. Sin is cancerous. Sin is aggressive. Which, which is why the crucifixion is horrible. It's traumatic. It's horrific. It's violent. It's brutal. It's horrible. We have a God who bleeds. Because rather than just crushing evil and crushing sin, He actually places it on himself. The judge becomes oppressed. The judge becomes afflicted. The judge bleeds and gives his life so that we can have new life through the Holy Spirit. So as we celebrate communion, may you behold may we behold during communion we take a wafer we take a cup of juice when I dismiss you can take that back to your seats we'll take it together you need to be a member of Southridge but what we do ask is that you you take communion as an act of beholding of receiving the sacrifice of Jesus into yourself if this is new to you if you're not quite ready to do this just Feel free to remain seated during this season of time. We're totally cool with that. Just continue to reflect. It's totally fine. But as we, as we do this, let's behold. We don't have a ram of God. We have the lamb of God. We have a God who bleeds because sin is visceral. It's physical. It's real. We feel it every day. So our God is a body 
that bleeds and takes the oppressiveness of sin on himself. I'll release you in sections. You can take the elements back to your seat and then we'll take them together. We're going to have this section go and far section over here. You guys can get up and go to the station's balcony. You can help yourself up there as well. other sections you guys can go to. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 4 says this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53 but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. From the outside perspective, it just looked like Jesus got what he had coming to him. He was crucified, he was killed, he was done away with. He was condemned, he was convicted. And Isaiah is saying, yeah, he was condemned. He was convicted. But he was actually taking your condemnation, your conviction, the violation of your sin on himself. And it's through Jesus 
the God who bleeds, the God who came in flesh and blood, because you're flesh and blood. And so he takes your flesh and blood sin, your violation that you do in your body, he takes it on himself. Let's eat the wafer and the juice together as we behold the Lamb. Stand with us as we sing this last song together.
come as we would expect as the ram of God but that you came as a lamb of God that your love for us ran red because we have a bleeding God who places our sin our oppression, our affliction, our violence on himself. Thank you for the bleeding lamb of God. And it's in the name of that lamb of God that we pray. And everyone who agreed said? Amen. Amen. Yeah. Our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray with you. God bless and have a wonderful day.